Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Enneagram for Awakening with Russ Hudson. This is session two, entitled The Levels of Development as a Guide to Vertical Transformation. This is your host, Jeffrey, at the Shift Network. If any time you have technical issues or questions during a call on MeisterConference, press 5 on your phone keypad. That's our universal call for technical support. And when I see that, I'll pull you aside and assist you as soon as possible. If you're on the webcast and have any technical questions or problems, just type right into the message box, include your email address, I will see uh, those submissions and can respond to you by email. Uh, I think I'll leave it at that. Without any further ado, I will turn it over to Russ. Welcome. Thank you, Jeffrey, and uh, welcome, everybody. Um, welcome back. Um, I've heard uh, a lot of uh, good comments from last week, and uh, boy, we got a lot of questions. And I just want to let you know that uh, we got and collected some of the questions that I didn't have time to get to during the call. Uh, And over the next uh, few days, I've been traveling uh, since last we spoke, but I will be uh, looking at those questions, and I'll try to write some answers for them, and and, uh, you'll be getting those answers. Um, I'm just also having a really amazing day. I am... uh, in California right now, and I've been teaching in a prison all day long and having an amazing time uh, just learning and exploring things with some of the inmates here. And just really amazing, again, for me to see how this stuff we're looking at really works and how it really can change our lives. But um, before we get into any kind of uh, specific conversation about the content, let's do what we do and put first things first by practicing for a moment and um, get ourselves a little more grounded and centered and uh, this is going to help us learn better and make sure that what we explore goes into the right parts of us. So I don't know, I might be sitting, standing, maybe laying down, but I want to be in a position where I can uh, feel relaxed but awake and meditation, taking a good nap is a very pleasant thing, but it's different than a centering practice. And uh, also, I don't want to be too tense and tight. Find a nice posture to be in that feels supportive of me. And when I have that, to just take a couple of deeper breaths. They don't have to be a big exaggeration, just a little deeper than my habit. Most personality states have rather shallow breathing. But to just take a moment to really do that shifts the momentum of my awareness. And as I'm breathing a little more deeply to bring my attention to sensation. Now, a real handy place to focus on is my feet because they're far from my head and far from where my emotions are happening. And yet they're also a part of the body that's pretty easy to find sensation. So right now, if I bring attention to the sensation in my feet, I may notice tingling, warmth, movement, 
all sorts of different things. And if I keep my attention here for more than a moment, it gets richer. It's almost like I can feel my feet are made out of sensation in some sense. And I feel the impulse, perhaps, to go to a thought about this or an emotional reaction or jump to something else. And I just notice that impulse, but I keep sensing my feet. It starts to develop another capacity in me rather than just going along with the thoughts or the reactions. And as I'm continuing to sense my feet and to breathe a little more deeply, I may start to very naturally notice sensation in other parts of my body. My legs or hands and arms. My face. Sensation has the marvelous property of only being in the present moment. I'm sensing the breath, noticing the different energies, sensations in my body now, feeling myself seated where I am. I can also notice that this brings in more heart, or perhaps I might say that my heart's more related to what's here now. It's not in reaction to phantoms things that aren't here. There's also more stillness inside, more quiet. There may or may not be a a slowing down of thoughts. Sometimes thoughts can even stop for a bit, but that's not really my concern. It's more just staying with the sensation, the breath, being with my heart as it's being touched by my experience here and now, and just letting the quiet background of my mind become more explicit, just by noticing it. Thank you. You know, last week we um, <clears throat> looked at the centers as um, a fundamental way into working with the Enneagram. And um, I was talking about how working with the centers and letting presence bring the centers into awakeness and then into alignment with each other was a kind of natural development that, and that we learn the Enneagram types to see what supports that presencing and that alignment and what it impedes it. And each type, depending on how we look at it, does both. Well, this, uh, this session, we're going to look more at what I might call the horizontal and vertical dimensions of the Enneagram. And I'm going to take some time to say a little bit about um, Don Riso's levels of development 
and uh, how they can be useful. Uh, some Enneagram teachers use them a lot, some not at all. But since I'm one that does, I thought it would be uh, useful to explain how they can be helpful for our inner growth and our development. Well, most of us, when we think about development, we think about acquiring skills. And generally speaking, the development of skills is what we might call a horizontal development. Uh, we learn uh, to play an instrument. We learn how to be a better listener to our client. We learn uh, how to shoot better um, shots in basketball. Right? We, we acquire skills, and some of them are external, some of them are internal. But the thing about that is that we're still assuming that the one who is acquiring the skills is the same. Vertical development, on the other hand, is a shift in the sense of who is acquiring the skills, who is having the experience, what's here as the subject of my experience. Vertical development, we see through our assumptions about who's here, who or what we think is having the experience. And vertical development is always uh, a function of being present to our psychological patterns and the content of our psyche. And sometimes when we do that with uh, real sincerity and stick with it, we may also become present and aware of parts of us that are not patterned, that are more uh, pure elements of consciousness. And that we're everything in between. We, we certainly can recognize these patterns are in us, uh, they're part of us, but there's, in the vertical development, we're looking at how presence shifts where we're looking from. What's our vantage point? What are we looking at our experience from? Which will have a lot of effect on the kind of behaviors we engage in, the kind of beliefs we're likely to have, and how free we are of some of our emotional and psychological issues or how bound up in them we are. Now, when um, Don Riso encountered the Enneagram back in the very early 70s, and he learned it through uh, Jesuit circles in Toronto, Canada, actually, um, people were pretty much talking about Oscar Chazo's basic premises. They were looking at four out of the uh, eight, uh, excuse me, 108 Enneagons that Oscar Chazo had brought. They were looking at the passions and the virtues and the fixations and the holy ideas. And uh, they were also looking at that a lot through the lens of teachings of Claudio Naranjo, who had been bringing some of these ideas forward in California. Now, when you look at the beautiful model that Oscar Chazzo laid out, he was looking at polarities in people. For example, to use a really uh, main one in the Enneagram, he was looking at the polarity between the passions on the one hand and the virtues. And I, I spoke a bit about this uh, last week, the passions being the particular form of our heart suffering, what makes us suffer, what gets us into various neurotic or even pathological um, situations. 
on the other hand, you've got the virtues, which are the qualities of the liberated heart. So I think we could see that Oscar was presenting us kind of what attracts us in opposite directions, what pulls us deeper and deeper into the web of ego, which is the suffering we're in, the, as described by the passion, and each type had a particular passion. And on the other hand, you've got the the pull of the virtues, this movement toward a certain kind of purification of our hearts. Well, when Don Risa learned this material, he thought that was great and, and interesting. But for him, the, what interested him was the fact that most of the people that he encountered, including himself, were not necessarily in the extreme experience of the passion, as it was described, or in the extreme experience of the virtue, but rather somewhere in between, that we're somewhere in the middle a lot of the time. So he wondered if there was some way to create a kind of photographic grayscale, going from the sort of more darkened qualities of our consciousness when we're really wrapped up in our suffering and our defenses and our fixated thinking and so forth, versus... Uh, the other end of the scale where we're relatively free of those things and getting more in touch with the qualities of being in essence that I've talked about a bit in this course but also that uh, discussed in some of the other classes we've done here on SHIFT with, with my colleagues. So he, he developed this idea that there were probably stages or um, markers along this continuum. And although he used the term levels of development, uh, in one sense this is a model of development, but in another sense it's not. Um, the levels are very specifically a measure or a, an indication of how we tend to see the world and ourselves and the kind of behaviors that spin out of that depending on how present we are or how not present we are. So higher up the levels is more present, more free, Further down the levels is more caught up in the passion and fixated patterns of our Enneagram type. So, of course, um, it was fascinating and interesting to map this territory, to look at each type, not as just one set of behaviors. And let's face it, in the early days, a lot of the behaviors that were described were more in the neurotic end of things. They weren't very nice or flattering descriptions, and I, I don't think they were meant to be. But there wasn't really a lot of discussion of the bigger range of the type, even as personality. So Don struggled, and in, in, in his first book, Personality Types, which he worked on for a, a good 10 years, he tried his best to try to describe each type in a range from you know, mental illness and depression and extreme difficulty all the way to states of um, spiritual liberation, psychological freedom and what the track was like on each of these as a way to not just describe it, but to also give people some sense of being more honest with ourselves about where we actually are. And he felt that if we described this accurately, you know, people had a sincere wish to awaken or develop, they would see uh, where they are in, in the continuum. But one really... Uh, amazing bit of good news about this is that as soon as we're actually sincerely interested in seeing where we are and as soon as we're actually present 
with the manifestations that are happening in us, that in itself brings presence and shifts us up the levels. As soon as we're paying attention to what's going on in us, by definition, we're going to be at a higher level. We're going to be a little more free of the patterns, less identified with them. That is in itself is a huge and helpful thing, and we developed some uh, markers in that that I'll, I'll talk about that can be very useful. The other thing that is very useful about the levels is they reveal very quickly our type biases. It's very rare when we're reading a book or going to see someone give talks about this, uh, or even you know, goodness, even if they're uh, you know interviewing panelists, that it's rare to find a person who does who gives all the types an equal shake. Uh, it becomes clear that we all have prejudices. And some types get discussed uh, in a little more friendly and glowing terms than others. Uh, and that's just part of human nature. Teachers, like anybody else, have had their own experiences of disappointment and so forth. And some of that can leak out when we're trying to explain this to people. With the levels, you can start to develop what uh, Don and I used to call level parity. Like if you're going to talk about type uh, 9 at at the fourth level, the level four, then you talk about the three at the fourth level, and you talk about the six at the fourth level, and so forth. You talk about the seven. So that, and, and all the types have a certain similarity in terms of their vertical development. There's certain, and I'll, I'll say a little bit about the nine levels in a moment. But it helps us to avoid our unconscious prejudices and to talk about each of the types with an even-handedness. Uh, with and with greater compassion, I hope to. Now, if I were to, to explain the levels, uh, I'm, I'm going to tie them in a little bit also with what we talked about last week. I'll see if I can do this succinctly. If you picture the levels as like the layers of a cake, uh, that if you make if uh, I've, there's a picture of this in our book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram. But if you think of the Enneagram as a circle. And it's a, if you think of it as a horizontal circle, like the top of a cake, then each of the levels is like a layer, different layers of the cake going down, right? From the, the top, where there's maybe some delicious frosting, <laughs> all the way down to the, the plate that the cake is sitting on. And, the, and so we're positing nine layers. And they're grouped in groups of three. At the top, you've got... Uh, the level one, two, and three, and that's what uh, Don called the healthy levels or high-functioning levels, where there's a lot of presence, a lot of connectedness, and a lot of freedom. Then we have the levels four, five, and six, which would be the middle part of the cake, and this is kind of the average or normal levels. This is where most people are most of the time, uh, kind of caught up in ego stuff, uh, occasionally getting more present, not exactly a bad person, certainly not crazy, but certainly caught up in some kind of patterns and self-concepts and reactions, just normal ego life. But as we go down, uh, four, five, six, it gets more and more agitated, more and more neurotic, more and more potentially problematic till we hit another shift. And at level seven, eight, or nine, we have the unhealthy levels. And these these are just levels of you know extreme distress, 
psychological problems, depression, addiction, you know, personality disorders, if you go far enough into it. Uh, these are where people are really having difficulty. And in the West, Wisdom of the Enneagram, we call this the types in trouble. So what the, the three top are what we call healthy, the middle are average or normal, the bottom are unhealthy. If you recall last week, I talked about how each type identifies with the center and then at a certain point, a second center gets mixed up in the in the project. Um, what that is, that we identify with one of those centers in the healthy levels. But what constitutes the average levels is a second center gets drawn in. So, for example, I'm a type 5, and I identify with the head center. And But starting... From going from the the healthy to the average, from level three to level four, I start to shift and bring in my heart center. It starts to mix with the head center in the ways we talked about last week. So if you go back and listen to those uh, recordings from last week and listen, you'll hear that each one of these developments from healthy to average involves bringing in another center or in the case of three, six, and nine, the beginning of a split. So I'm not going to reteach all of that stuff right now, but it's there. We listen to it, and if you haven't yet, you can, of course, go listen to the recording. I'm just trying to bring this in to show you that these things don't exist in some unintegrated way. All the, the models and things we're looking at work kind of beautifully together and point toward a, a kind of seamless whole about how it all works. So I think what I'll do next is I just want to explain a little bit about what the levels are like for all of the types, what they have in common. Then we'll probably do a little uh, contemplation for a moment, and then I'll, I'll look at a, a couple of the other things. I want to talk about the healthy side of the types, which is tends to get neglected in uh, the Enneagram work. Um, we usually, in a discussion of the levels, start at level two, uh, because that's where ego kicks in. At level two, uh, concepts about ourself and the world form, basically qualities of presence, qualities of being that are just naturally part of us, natural capacities or gifts that we have are there and very available and, and certainly being expressed, but we start to identify with them. We start to think that we are our gift. We make an identity out of it. So, for example, um, twos are very loving, caring people. And, and they don't have to try to be. It's just a natural expression. But at level two, of type two, I make an identity. And I start to think, I am a loving, caring person. That's who I am. That's what I am. Uh, level uh, you know, sevens at level two might think, well, at, at a seven, I really am a kind of free-spirited, spirited, curious, open-minded, exploratory kind of person, positive person. But I start to think of myself as that at level two, make an identity out of it, which is fairly innocent at this point. But as soon as we make an identity out of these talents or capacities, it sets up a fear of not being that way. So, for example, the two, if I'm thinking I'm a loving, kind, giving, you know, generous person... 
then I start to fear any way I'm not like that, in ways I might be selfish or self-centered or angry or not loving. So things that look that way to me start to become threatening. And this is all very subtle, but that's how ego, all ego starts as some kind of split, some kind of sense of a way we think we're supposed to be and a part of ourselves that we reject because we think it's going to ruin the, the gift that we have and that we're trying to be. So if you take that down another notch, you get to level three. At level three, we're still expressing the gift and we're very identified with it, but we're, we're in a sense doing as well as ego can do. We're out in the world. We're, we're using our gifts well. We're pretty balanced as a person. Uh, our other centers are working pretty well. And a lot of the good that comes out of our Enneagram types is really easy to see here. Um, those twos really are going around doing loving, generous things. Eights are, are really doing challenging, strong, um, championing kind of things and so forth. Each type is bringing out the best that they've got at level three. The difference between level three and level two is that at level two, you notice, you're present enough to notice that you're trying to be these things. And that might raise some really important questions. At level three, you're definitely bringing the good stuff. It's real, but you're more caught up in it. You're not questioning as much, why am I identifying with this part of me? Right? So, But it's still very good. Um, if you had a group or a company at this level, they'd be extraordinarily creative, interactive. There'd be a lot of respect. There'd be a lot of flow. Level three is pretty awesome. Right? Already, um, most people get to level three and they, they think they're enlightened. They, they're not necessarily enlightened, but relative to being in a fixated ego, it sure feels that way. But then we have this shock point. We have this shift to level four. Level four starts to bring in a, a kind of, we get denser. We get more caught up in it. And as I said, we bring in a second center. At this point, we get more identified with the roles that we're playing in life. We get more identified with what we're trying to do and be for other people, and we're wanting other people to buy into that. Now, this is not obnoxious. We're, we're mostly nice people here. We're doing good things still. We're getting work done. We're doing our best to be good parents, good friends, good lovers. And it's all nice, but we're starting to forget at this stage what we are beyond the roles we're playing. So we're nobody would dislike us, but something that was easier to notice in the healthy levels has is, is gotten blurry for us and, and for other people. Um, we're fulfilling a lot of social roles at this level. Uh, and there is something I'm going to come back to uh, after I go through these at this level called a wake-up call. Um, a little later in, in this talk, I want to talk about the wake-up calls and invite you to create one for yourself. Uh, the wake-up calls we put at level four because it's becoming awake or present to something, a habit that I fall into at this level that tends to make me get identified with my type pattern. makes me forget that there's more to me than that. So we'll, we'll return to that. If um, we had an office at this level, 
It'll be very pleasant. You'd enjoy it. You'd definitely want to work in this place. It would be just humming along, people getting their coffee, doing their work, having respectful conversation. It's not as exciting and thrilling and creative and joyful as level three, but it's still pretty good. It's just there's that a certain spark is, as I said, gotten blurry. I call level four a nice day without presence. <laughs> like things are going our way. We're in a pretty good mood, but we're just not that aware of ourselves. Level five gets a little deeper each level, we're moving further away from our gift. We're moving further away from presence. And as we get further away from present, we get more reactive. We get more scared. We get more defensive. We get more um, reactive to whatever situation we're in. And we get more stuck in the various kind of defensive patterns that we learn in childhood to handle things. Now, again, this isn't wrong or bad. It's just kind of normal ego functioning. But from the point of view of presence, it feels limiting. If you're just living your life this way, it just seems like me. So at this level, um, we start to get into more manipulation of ourselves and each other. We're, we're trying to uh, tamp down certain feelings or exaggerate others. We're playing favorites with our centers. We're also trying very hard to get people to buy into the self-concept that we have of ourselves. If I'm an eight, I'm really trying to get people to acknowledge that I'm the strong one. If I'm the two, I'm trying really hard to get people to acknowledge I'm the loving one. If I'm a five, I'm really needing to get everybody to acknowledge I'm the smart one who understands things around here. So, of course, doing that um, works occasionally, but a lot of times it just annoys people. So level five, there's a lot of button pushing. We're getting our buttons pushed, and we're pushing other people's buttons. And none of this is 100% conscious. It's, there's a lot of reactivity. Uh, we used to also say that this is the level where we start to get into conflicts with people. Now, above this, we might have disagreements, and that's okay. But now it's conflicts. There's like an emotional charge to it. If this doesn't get any better uh, and we keep getting further away from presence, we can go to level six. Level six is now we're getting more agitated. We're getting way more scared. We're more aggressive. We're more domineering. We're more pushy about what we want. And there's a way in which we're a lot less sensitive to other people. Uh, it doesn't matter which Enneagram type. We, we have nine ways of doing that, but those themes are there for all of the nine types at that level. Uh, I always say that level six, we start to be very impulsive. Like there's something that we want to do, and maybe deep down we know this is not good for us, might not be good for our friends or our loved ones, might not be good for our company, might not be good for the world. But by golly, I'm going to do it. And you got a problem with that? You know, I, I get aggressive about what I, I'm trying to do because I'm desperately trying to control emotions that are getting more difficult. Nobody goes down to level six without having some real problems in life. They could be historical problems or problems and stresses that are arising now, and I, I just don't have the tools to handle them. So we're very defended, very aggressive, very difficult, very volatile, and uh, <clears throat> we used 
Don Riso and I used to sort of chucklingly say that the, we're not crazy at this level, but we're definitely a pain in the butt. We're, we're, no, we're not exactly enjoyable company at this level. Uh, the, after this, though, you know, this way of living is, is not fun. Uh, we're we're wearing ourselves out. We're wearing out the people around us. Uh, we get spread pretty thin uh, living this way. We may not know there's another way to be. We may live this way for a long period in our life. Sometimes it's painful enough that we wise up. We bottom out and go back up the levels. And there's another feature here we call the red flag uh, and by that I mean like in, in nautical terms. It's a red flag is a warning symbol. <coughs> and sometimes, <coughs> excuse me, it's a place where we, um, we bottom out and turn things around. But if we don't, if we're, we're too wounded or the stress doesn't really get any better or simply we don't have any tools to deal with the situation that we're in, we can fall down to level seven. Now we're at the unhealthy levels. And this is the beginning of real trouble. We're getting, um, our thinking is off, our emotions are big and, and more out of control. We're prone to depression here. Uh, addiction is a much bigger risk here. Um, and we're, we're really starting to be in danger. Uh, we, at this level, we're not really in a position to be able to do much for ourselves on our own. We really need help, support, uh, support from peers, support from maybe a, a coach or a therapist, a, a support group. Um, but it's we're not in a position at level seven to see accurately the degree of trouble we're in. I would just also add that some types at this level look like they're in trouble. It's kind of obvious. Fours at this level, for example, look like they're having a bad time. Fives at this level look like they're having a bad time. But some types can still function here. And even though they're beginning to suffer mental illness, they're still kind of able to pull it together enough to do their job, at least to seem like they're doing their job. And so some of the types, even though they're starting to be in a realm of, of really dangerous mental and emotional situations, they're still able to get out and function. So I say that because our ideas of mental illness are often very limited. Um, and there's at least nine different ways that this can show up, and, and a great deal more than that, of course. Um, after this, we hit level eight. And level eight is um, where we're in deep, deep, deep psychological difficulty. Uh, for you uh, psychotherapists, clinicians, this would be level of uh, fully uh, developed personality disorders. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it's not that I'm just a person who's paranoid sometimes. Paranoia defines my whole psyche. So that would be called paranoid personality disorder. And so uh, maybe a six down this this far down the levels would be really lost in paranoid ideation, paranoid thinking, and reactions that come out of that. Uh, this is where you know, you might be in just clinical depression or really deep addiction problems. Very obvious a person needs a lot of help and support at this level, but whether they're willing to or not is another matter. And then there's only one more beyond this, which is level nine. And level nine is just the complete kind of collapse of the psyche. It manifests as a psychotic break. 
as sometimes murder or suicide or both. Um, it, it's just that the, there's just too much suffering and the psyche just can't go on anymore. It becomes overwhelmed by the distortions in it. And when we're teaching this in, in uh, Enneagram trainings over the years or in workshops, uh, we would always turn to the group after we talk about this. And, and let's face it, this is kind of a harrowing journey, <laughs> to, like journey to hell, to start to see this descent into the the lostness that can happen in, in these patterns. We get down here to level nine, and then we turn to the audience and we say, but it doesn't have to go that way. And I really believe that's true. Um, I just, I feel really moved. I feel on the edge of tears here, just sharing with you, you know, being here at the prison today, being with, with men and women who've been in really, really difficult situations and gotten themselves into some real trouble and yet here they are learning about themselves, seeing new things about themselves, making breakthroughs. Don Riso used to always say that, well, people would ask, can people come back from these really, really difficult places? And he used to always say, yes, um, I believe they can. And it's just a question of how much a society is willing to commit in terms of resources, energy, and creativity to do that. But I'm just more convinced than ever that uh, it doesn't have to go that way. There are there are supports and ways to carry people through some of these very difficult places. Everyone, who knows? But I, I just am not of the uh, temperament that I can assume that anyone is a lost cause. So we turn it around and we go back to level one, which you might remember we didn't talk about that. Level one is liberation from our egoic concepts. It's, it's not the end of the road. It's, let's say it's the beginning of another whole way of being where, we've, where our presence has moved into the foreground. Like the, it's an old cliche, but it's actually pretty accurate. You know, in, the, um, in the healthy but sort of still ego range, we are a personality that's trying to find presence and remember presence and notice presence. But in the shift from level two to level one, it kind of flips around and it's more like we're presence that is temporarily manifesting these patterns of personality and that what I am is actually the presence. And it's not just a philosophical idea. It's not just a nice thing to agree with or disagree with. It's my actual experience. And uh, that changes everything. And, you know, most of us don't stay at level one all the time. But as we keep having moments of touching that, of remembering it, what Mr. Kajif called self-remembering, remembering what we are beyond the personality, uh, in the three-centered way we talked about last week, it starts to shift our center of gravity. And so we may not jump from one of those average levels straight to level one, but as we keep having these kind of corrective experiences, expanded senses of what we are, and particularly when we bring that illuminated consciousness and that compassion to the patterns that we've been caught up in, it softens them. They lose their grip. And little by little, we kind of pop up a level. I think that people fluctuate in the levels maybe all day long. We can go a huge range in a single day. But 
we tend to come back around to one of them that feels the most normal to us. Somewhere in that range, we, we've kind of parked ourselves, and we'll tend to come back to that. But as we keep doing the inner work, where we park, where we come back to, goes up the levels. And you know, for some individuals, it can even go up to being parked at level one or beyond. Um, I don't think that we need to be ambitious that way. In fact, as soon as I start thinking that I'm at level one all the time, I'm probably not. It's, it's just being interested in our experience in the here and now, noticing what's happening in our mind, heart, and body. That in itself, as I said at the beginning, starts to move me up the levels because what defines them is my awakeness to what's happening in me and around me. So let's take a moment to, um, to recenter. I've been talking a lot, and it's a lot of material, but I'm really committed to giving you guys some, some good stuff, um, some deep material to work with in the, the time that we have. But that's going to work best if we just take that moment. Right now as I am, I'm already in some configuration. I'm, there's a certain momentum to my thoughts, images. There's some movement to my emotions. There may be some mood that I'm in. And certainly there's some relationship with my body, my breath, my posture. As soon as I pay attention to any of that and not just take it as reality, as the only reality, just notice what happens in your experience. If I just breathe a little deeper and I'm not trying to get away from my thoughts and feelings and postures, I'm trying to notice them, be awake to them. What happens? Just take in the impressions. Yeah, the the practice here is not trying to jump out of personality into some particular state. It's more about bringing awakeness and awareness to what is already happening in me. And that in itself will start to produce alchemical changes. Trick is remembering that this is available. Part of us that's running around at level five doesn't know that there is this other possibility hasn't got the news yet. But maybe it will. Thank you. Just notice as you take these pauses how it shifts your sense of where you are. You're listening to this voice speaking and you're at a computer or at a phone or somewhere in a room, but 
you know, there's a way of when we come into ourselves, we feel reintegrated into the context we're in, the environment we're in, and that becomes more explicit too. We become more aware of that also. So take a moment to just notice where I am. What does it feel like to be where I am right now? Thank you. So, um, I wanted to go around the nine types. I obviously don't have time to explain what happens with all nine types and all nine levels. In fact, that's what we do in our part one training program at the Enneagram Institute. We go into that, that exploration. It takes us a week to do it. I don't have a week right now, but there are some key elements that I think are useful. And if you want to know more about this, you can always read um, some of the books. I would, if you're interested in the levels, I would particularly recommend um, personality types. And uh, we have a lot written about them also in uh, in Wisdom of the Enneagram. Um, but I wanted to say uh, something that is really easy way to create. A, a kind of customized inner work practice based in, in this understanding. Between the healthy and average levels of any type, uh, that is to say between level three and level four, there is a tendency to fall into a particular habit, a particular way of being that is the pattern that we fall asleep in. And so if we can recognize that and get specific about it, that very pattern can become an alarm clock. This is a Gurdjieffian concept, that the thing that tends to make me fall asleep, if I become aware of it, can be a constant reminder to breathe, sense, center, get with my heart, and you know, come back to presence. The hard thing about being present, as I keep saying, is remembering that we can be. So this is a huge help, and we call these the wake-up calls. This was something I, I started cooking up back in the in the mid early to mid-90s, and they're just little things to observe in ourselves, but they work best if you customize them a little bit. So I'm going to just go through the nine types and talk about the wake-up call. Um, the wake-up call for the eight is using more energy than I need to. Now, how do you notice that? Well, you have to be a little bit present even to notice. But it's like speaking in a voice that's a little louder than I need to or with a little more energy. Sometimes that actually wears my voice out. Um, I'm walking around with more force than I need to. I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm gripping the pen a certain way. Um, this is a sign that I'm starting to get into my stuff as an eight. It's like everything feels like an exertion. I, I've described it as the feeling of walking uphill even when I'm on flat ground. Um, like I'm pushing 
to make something happen. I'm exerting myself. I'm, you can get a feeling of that. I'm, I'm just using words to try to point to something that's more a sense of myself. It's like I'm trying to squeeze out the realness of life. I'm trying to make things real. I'm trying to make things happen. And you can feel what that's like. And it has a very particular effect on our sense of being connected with ourselves and with the world. So um, my suggestion is, as an eight, you can start to actually study where am I using more energy than I need to? Where am and, and to track that, to notice it throughout the day. And if you're actually looking for that, you have to be kind of connected to your body and presence to even notice. So it's, it's a wonderful way of getting more into the body and noticing how I'm using my energy. I always think, you know, eights are often good with money and resources, but not always so good with my own resources. I kind of burn them up. It, it, this takes a big toll on my health if I'm not aware of it. It puts a lot of stress on my body. I think you can get the feeling of that. that if you, and if you notice yourself doing it, what? Breathe, sense your body, sense your heart, pause, continue. And I think you'll find that your life will stay closer to the healthy side of the eight. And what's the healthy side of the eight about? It's about empowerment, confidence, uh, power and love being more connected. Uh, when we Once we don't go with that uh, wake-up call, if we forget it, we get into this kind of force and, and control and pushing ourselves and, and sometimes others in a way that takes us further and further away from this sense of empowerment and uh, connectedness. I mean, the real power and love are, go together. Yeah. So the nine, um, the wake-up call is... Um, going along with things that I don't really want to go along with. <clears throat> it's sort of not being able to say no. And uh, sometimes it's not also articulating what I want or need. It's the way I kind of put myself on the back burner because I don't want to create conflicts with people. Now, I think nines, if you've figured out that you're a nine, you, you probably noticed that you don't like conflicts but there's a way that we take ourselves out of a certain kind of participation when we are scared about conflicts. If we're doing that, that's going to take us down the slippery slope of nineness into the average and lower levels of nine where we're really shut down and alienated from ourselves and with a lot of repressed anger to boot. However, if we can notice that movement where we say yes when we mean no, when someone asks me, where do you want to go for dinner? And I actually say, hold on a second. Let me tune in and see what my response is. And actually asking people for sometimes for the time and space to sort of get in touch with that. People who love us will support us because they want to know what we think, what we care about. But to just notice that tendency to discount myself to take myself out of the equation, to really consider everybody's opinion and view but my own. I, I think that most nines will get what this is. And again, if you see that happening, <clears throat> you breathe, you center, you feel your feet on the earth, you feel your heart, and suddenly there you are. You're, you're here 
in the world. You're, you are participating in what's happening, and your voice, your energy, your contribution matters greatly. And I think then we're back in the healthy nine, which is this, this beautiful, dynamic being participating deeply in the moment, having landed and, and come home to myself in such a way that it makes everybody else feel more at home in themselves. So then really beautiful things can happen. Yeah. I think that, that when we can remember the wake-up call, we're going to spend more time in that high side of the nine. The one is... Um, the wake-up call is... Uh, it's it's um, feeling like I'm the only responsible person in the situation. It's all on my shoulders. Nobody else is going to do it. Or maybe they will, but they're going to do a crap job. You know, So it's really up to me to make sure the standards are upheld. And that's kind of the cognitive part of it. But you know, all of these have uh, a head heart and body parts. So one's a good example. My mind, I might be thinking, you know, nobody cares about this but me. Here I go again. I'm the one who has to do it. Your emotions are going to feel frustrated, agitated, annoyed, kind of exasperated. And that's close to the passion of the one, right? This kind of resentful, frustrated anger. The um, And then you might also notice you can approach any of these also from the body, so, for example, with point one, I know I might notice that when I'm thinking these kind of thoughts and feeling these kind of feelings, that my neck and my jaw and my shoulders start to get tight, hard. They can start to feel like wood. There's a whole physicality that goes along with it. And the idea, again, with all of these is to, you could notice it on a body level, heart level, head level. What's it like? What's, what's happening in me when this pattern is taking over? When I don't go with that pattern, <clears throat> when I can see it, it brings me into the healthy one where my beautiful organic integrity and my caring and my seeing the goodness in myself and others is, is right there and very inspiring to other people. You know, that it's, I'm back on track. You see, all these are a way of getting ourselves back on track. Um, so moving right along, the two... I hope you guys are getting this. <laughs> I can I imagine all these little pens and <laughs> writing out there and, and little uh, you know word processor keys being uh, pressed. The two, the the uh, the wake up call I call leaning in. What does that mean? As a two, when I'm I'm feeling I'm not feeling connected to people. I'm not feeling a heart connection. I start to get scared about that. And then energetically, I lean toward other people. I, I Sometimes I might even do it physically, but at least energetically, I'm leaning into other people. It's like my center of gravity isn't in me. It's with the other person. So my attention's with the other person. My energy's with the other person, which creates problems. First of all, when I do that, I'm not in my own dignity anymore. And when I'm not in my own center... I can't feel the connection that's here. We feel our heart connection with others when we're connected with our own heart. The, pro the problem with the two is I'm right that there's a connection that's off, but the connection, the pr connection problem isn't with the other person. It's me within myself. I'm not connected with my own heart. And no matter how much energy I put into the other person, no matter how much I lean into them, 
even if they respond, if I'm not in my center, I'm not going to feel the sense of love, connection, um, the beautiful things that the two is both an expression of and, and what we're seeking in the two. So how can I pull myself back to center? Notice that energetic leaning in and come back into my own dignity. From that place, I will feel the beautiful communion of hearts, which is what I'm looking for as a two. And um, that will work every time. Bring me back to the attunement and richness and, and the heart field of two that is what we're looking for. The uh, the three wake up call is um, it, it, I try to put these in language and and look talk about them from a few different angles so that you can get a feeling of them. I, the words are there just to help us, but don't get hung up on the words. I, I'm pointing to something that people do. The three it's I call it uh, flipping the switch um, and. People are threes will understand what I mean. Where suddenly it's showtime. <laughs> Time to go. Get it together. Pull your act together. Start to function. Okay, here's my list. Here's what I got to go through. Now I'm going to go to the meeting. It's like we 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 go from being actually present to our experience, present with our functioning, present with our heart, to snapping into this man or woman who gets things done. And when we do that, it's a very interesting thing. One of the symptoms of it is we stop feeling the reward or richness of the great things that we're doing. We start to feel kind of disconnected and empty. And maybe we get a lot of things done, but we're not feeling it in a certain way. And that could be a little bit or a lot, you know, depending on what level we're at within the three. But there's a way here of reintegrating where our functioning is in connection with our heart and connection with our presence. A real simple practice that helps with that is just sometimes uh, threes, just slowing down a teeny tiny bit. Not in some exaggerated cartoonish way, but just enough so that I'm not just zipping along in that habitual pattern. Just slowing enough that I can feel myself talking, walking, doing my exercises, doing my work. Right, making sure that I'm here in the functioning is the wake-up call. And when I do that, all the beautiful sense of meaning and and uh, the self-worth, the sense of of joy in functioning and doing the good work that I'm doing, that's the mark of the healthy three is restored for me. And it's not as far away as we think. Any of these things. The four. The wake-up call is, um, let's see how I put it. Well, it's I've called it fantasizing, but we have to understand that in a, a certain way. Um, basically, as I talked about last week, uh, the four gets into a pattern where I use thoughts to trigger feelings. And those thoughts could be fantasies about the future, but a lot of times they're memories associations from the past that are kind of creeping into the current situation. But what I start doing at level four, as a four, is I start tweaking my emotions to put myself in a certain kind of mood that feels familiar to me. 
Um, usually it's a mood that has elements of melancholy or longing or some sadness. And it, it may, or there's some parts of it I might even like, but some it's very risky because it's close to some really difficult places that as a four I, I can really suffer. So it's sort of like if I listen to the siren's call of those old stories and feelings and thoughts, that, that I can feel that the thing about with the four is that when you are forgetting this, when you're not remembering the wake-up call, this mood takes you out of connection with the moment. You're not here with what's happening. So my a little practice that I did and uh, when I was... Uh, I'm not a four, but I have a big four wing, is to be aware of beauty. Uh, beauty around me. I, I talked a little bit about this last week, that in the present moment, there's always something rich and beautiful if I show up enough to actually take it in. When I'm not present and I'm swirling around in these moods, I miss a lot of the beauty. And usually the beauty is much better heart food for me than these getting back into this kind of mood and old stories and fantasies yet another time. But again, it's it's presence, it's embodiment, being aware of where we are right now and the beauty of where we are that helps to get us out of that pattern. Right? So the five, um, the five pattern, the wake-up call, is disconnecting to understand. So what that means is that, you know, when I really am in the illuminating power of mind, and that's available to everybody, but kind of the gift of five, when I'm really seeing into the depth of something with understanding and clarity, that comes because I'm in contact with myself and with life. I'm feeling my body. I'm feeling my heart. I'm feeling myself here now. That actually opens up the real capacities of mind. But the personality doesn't trust that. And so for various psychodynamic reasons, I, with, I withdraw, I, I disconnect, I avoid contact. And then my mind just kind of goes into uh, overdrive, trying to understand things, memorize things, figure things out, um, store a lot of uh, knowledge in my head, all of which is in some sense designed to bring more confidence so I can do my thing in the world, but the more I stay disconnected and in my head, the less I have a body to draw on, and the body is where we find the confidence and energy. Um, if we don't connect, our our mind is going to figure some things out, but it's also going to lead us around in a lot of wild goose chases in a lot of circles. And even if we have memorized things, we still don't feel wise we don't feel like we know. So coming back into contact, reconnecting with ourself, with our body, our breath, our heart, reawakens the, the true quality of mind of the of point five. So sixes and sevens, you're probably thinking, well, it's about time. <laughs> That's the thing about the Enneagram. Anything I say, I've, I've kind of got to do nine times. Thank God the, the subtypes are instincts. There's only three, but Stay tuned. There's more to that, too. Um, six, the gift is is this awakeness, this attentiveness, the ability to pay attention, mindfulness, and, and the sense of really caring about what I'm focused on. When we forget to be present, the wake-up call is 
we lose that sense of clear, awake attention that kind of helps us feel confident in knowing what to do. And suddenly we're trying to figure out what to do. We're overthinking things. We're, our mind goes in a hyperdrive. We're kind of, uh, there's a lot of worry and planning and, oh, my God, what if I do this? And if this happens, how am I going to do that? And, you know, I've got to get the kids back by, you know, from school and hopefully I've got a time to get into the gym, but I may not be, you know, you get that idea. It's like the mind gets overloaded with trying to, the, the task of trying to figure out what to do. And then I'm either paralyzed by all this hyperthink or I get sick of it and I do something impulsive, which may or may not be bringing me to what I want. That impulsiveness is not the same as this inner knowing that we have access to. So for the six, it's, it's a little bit of a two-parter. I need to, when I notice that hyperthink going on, when I'm overthinking something, going round and round, what Don and I used to call it, yes, but mine. Yes, but on the other hand, right, when I'm starting to do that, I need to breathe and sense the body, but I also need to notice the quiet inside my mind. There might still be thoughts, but there's space between the words. There's space behind the words and images. To notice the quality of quiet, to stay present long enough to have that quiet at least somewhat restored, then continue. And that would be a wake-up call for the six. It restores this beautiful knowing and, and about what to do and this, this beautiful, awake attentiveness. So um, last but not least, we have the sevens. And uh, here, um, the wake-up call is, we've used the old cliche, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And I was really uh, kind of tickled uh, many years ago when I was first teaching in China and Hong Kong and um, in Chinese culture. I, I think this is Cantonese, but I'm not sure. Um, there is this saying that the neighbor, your neighbor's rice always smells better, which has a little bit of the seven and a little bit of the four in there because there's a little bit of envy in it. But basically, it's the idea that I get restless. I get agitated. I get, truth be told, it's a kind of anxiety. There's a, a fear underneath. That may not be what I'm aware of. I'm, I get nervous, restless. I want to move. I want to get onto something. And I, or at the very least, my mind is thinking about something that's not what I'm doing and where I am. I'm fantasizing about some other situation, where I'm going, what I'm going to do next. Something else is better. I'm attracted to something over there. Or uh, where I'm not is savoring where I am right now. So when this gets kicked in, and it's really good to see, Sevens, that it's a, an anxiety thing. When that gets kicked in, I'm sort of looking and trying this and thinking about that and thinking about that. Uh, I'm not in any position then to actually get any nourishment or satisfaction from the experience that I'm having now. It sort of sets me up to be frustrated and... and uh, and to feel kind of ripped off. So when we can see ourselves, see that restlessness rising, and there's certain behaviors that I'll probably do that are my way of expressing this. I see my mind going into all these possibilities and options, and I'm just not with what I'm doing in that moment or what I might even be receiving. I mean, my goodness, you could be in a Michelin star restaurant and thinking about what you're going to do the next morning. So you're not really enjoying the restaurant even. When that's all going on, breath, 
grounding and like the six, noticing that quiet inside. And I see that that anxiety that seems so overwhelming and so impossible to deal with is actually well within my power to deal. And when I do that, I start savoring and appreciating where I am, what's happening in my life. I start to feel gratitude and joy and this beautiful inner freedom, which is my natural state as the high side of seven. So what I want to propose is if you know your Enneagram type, that you consider these wake-up calls that I offered you. And I'm sure you were listening in pretty closely to the one that that was pertained to you. Eight, using too much energy, more than I need. Nine, uh, kind of writing myself out, not saying no, you know, going along with things. One is this getting annoyed that I'm the only responsible one around here and why does it always fall on me? Two is this leaning in, uh, losing my own center. Three is getting ahead of myself, getting out of phase with myself, switching it on and leaving my kind of internal life behind. Uh, four is the sort of tweaking my emotions into moods that take me out of connection by thinking about certain things. Uh, five is breaking contact, disconnecting, because I think it's going to help me understand stuff better. Six is, uh, is is getting agitated that I won't know what to do and overthinking things. Uh, and then seven is, um, again, this uh, thinking that the experience, I'm, there's something wrong with the experience I have. Therefore, if I was having another experience, everything would be great. But then I'm thinking about things other than where I am and what I'm doing, which robs me of the joy of what I'm doing. So if you look at one for your type, I invite you to take a minute to write down a couple of things about your what you feel about that. Is that something you do? Is that do you see yourself doing this sometimes? And if so, how does it manifest in you? I don't expect you to get all of it right now, but to start writing a few things so you can fill in more later. But you want to ask yourself, what happens in my body when this pattern takes over? Is there, are there certain postures or tensions or ways of moving? Do certain parts of me get numb? There's all sorts of things that might happen physically when we consider this pattern. So just take a moment to, if you have any idea about that, to just jot a couple things down. Or just a word or two to remind you so you can fill it in later. And if you are uh, looking at this from the point of view of the heart, are there certain emotional states that you associate with this character that you become? That you know, mm. I, I, I there's things I do. I certainly can see that. What, what's the feeling of it like when I become this? this pattern. 
very important. This will help you so much if you can get a, a little handle on this. This is what the Enneagram works all about. You don't have to write a, you know, an essay. Just a few words to help you remember, and you can come back to this later. I noticed, you know, when I was getting into some of my darker five things, I'd be very disconnected. I'd start to feel a kind of, I don't know what to call it, it was sort of depressive. It was like a gray feeling. It doesn't have to be, um, you don't have to just say happy, sad, these simple words. You can use other kind of descriptive language to sort of paint a picture of the sense of what that feels like when I get into that state. And last but not least, are there certain thoughts, certain themes that tend to come up a lot, certain kinds of ways of thinking that I see that happen when I shift into these patterns that I get stuck in? What kind of themes are they? What do they focus on? Are there little childhood message kind of words, little things you tell yourself over and over that come up? Like one of mine as five was come up was, well, I'll never belong. I'm never going to fit in here. Don't even try. There's, a lot of these are kind of inner critics on it kind of things that could come up too. And what I really invite you to do is you're going to get deepening practices, and this wasn't one of them. This is like a bonus deepening practice, but just coming off the cuff. You know, really, uh, the deepening practices you're going to get later will support you in doing this. But see if you can track this character around, this character that you become. What triggers it? What tends to make you get into this more deeply and what kind of situations or contexts do you wear it more lightly or even get free of it sometimes everybody has these patterns there's no human being on the earth that's 100% free of this but again the whole promise of the vertical dimension is if I'm conscious of the patterns that I'm not just using a trance to get a vacation from the pattern the very presence and compassionate seeing of it starts to liberate energy and and heart and resources that I often don't even recognize I have. So um, I think that's a good place to sort of uh, close out our discussion today, which I hope was mm. interesting and helpful. And let's see uh, if we... Uh, Caroline, is that you? Yes. Are we ready for Q&A, Russ? I am ready. <laughs> awesome. Okay. If you are on the phone, please press 1, and we'll get you right over to Russ. And if you're on the webcast, please feel free to write into the message box 
And please do tell us your email address, and we'll also go ahead and get your message over to Russ. So again, if you're on the phone, please press 1. And we'll give you just a moment here. Okay. Looks like we have Jean with a hand up. Jean, if you would, go ahead. You have the mic. Hi. Thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. Russ, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more, please, about the going through the levels and the centers. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just I missed it a little bit where you said, you know, in the higher levels it was the one center and then you bring in another. So can you go over that movement a little bit more? Sure. Uh, Yeah. And it's really fun to see because, again, I'm, I'm wanting people to get that that these models are not just floating in space. They're, it's an integrative view of human beings. Basically, the idea is if, if we think of the nine levels, at level one, you're not identified with any center and you're present in all of them. You're, you're a balanced, beautiful, gorgeous human being. And you're still that even at the lower levels. You just don't know that. <laughs> at, this, at level two, we identify with a certain center. And the part of the center that we identify is kind of related to our type. Like, So, for example, in the heart center, uh, twos are going to identify with the part of the heart that has to do with connection and holding and kindness. And, and fours are going to be connected with the part of the heart that has to do with mystery and beauty and intimacy and depth and getting into that rich stuff. you know. And, and threes are going to be related to the part of the heart that's about meaning and self-worth and, and so forth. And so each of those is true, and we still are those things at the healthy levels, but we're identified with it a little bit, so that's going to create a shadow, as we were saying. But as we get less present, it isn't producing what we hope it will. We're doing all this stuff. We're doing all these kind of inner and outer activities, but we don't yet understand this presence that restores the qualities we're seeking. So we then you get to a certain point, and between level three and four, between the healthy and the average, there's what Mr. Kajif called a shock point. And the shock is another center gets sucked into the equation. And that's what we talked about last week. So, for example, the four um, is identified with the heart center. But as a healthy four, I have a totally available body and mind, which is beautiful. So there's a lot of action and engagement and creativity. But once I get into an average four, the mind gets drawn in in a certain way to tweaking those feelings. So now there's two centers that are stuck in the identity system. And, and the, the, but there's still a third center, which is, in the fourth case, the body center, the belly, which is there, but I don't pay a lot of attention to it because my sense of identity is coming from this kind of loop between my thinking and feeling. And then the problem is, if we go down to level six, we're in a lot of trouble. We're really not present. Things really aren't working. When we go to the level seven and the unhealthy levels, all three centers become imbalanced, which is why then we need a center of gravity that we can't produce for ourselves. So that's what a therapist or a, or a support group or a 12-step group or sometimes medication can be something that helps stabilize us because now everything's sucked in. So all of the types, one way or another, follow that pattern just with different centers in the sequence. And, the, and I gave those last week. Um, the only exception is, as I said, the, 
the three, the six, and the nine, um, I'll use the three as an example. It's, it, we talked about how the centers, a center gets separated, split off. So the three at um, in the healthy levels is identified with the heart, and and but particular qualities of the heart, as I said, having to do with meaning and value and self-esteem and 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 stuff like that, uh, authenticity. When but at a certain point of not being present, even though I'm doing all these things, I'm still not feeling it. What happens at level four for the three is not a second center coming in, but the heart center splitting off. Like there's this sense that, okay, I've got to focus on functioning to be able to get to what is going to make me feel valuable. So there's a split between the heart and the head and belly, which are now together in a loop of functioning. The work of those types, as I said last week, is to put those two split parts back together. Or with the six, it's getting the mind connected back with the heart and body. Or with the nine, it's getting the body connected back with the head and heart. When we get down to the unhealthy levels of those types, uh, even the, the other two that were connected, they also split. So you get in all three a kind of disorganized self where the different components are not communicating with each other very well. So it's a different kind of sequence. Um, but if I, I, in each case, the shock points are there. The shifts happen. The reason why there's a difference between a healthy and an average type has to do with this other center coming in. Or, or the difference between an average and an unhealthy type has to do with all the centers going kaflui in some sense. So I hope that explains it a little better and fills some things out. What do you think? It, it does very much so. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Jean. Mm. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Okay, and from Lisa on the webcast, this is a question from the March 10th class. Do the descriptions of the Enneagram types that you discussed, i.e. for type 1, will go to heart type first when out of balance and should also consider going to head type to rebalance, relate to the directions of integration and disintegration? Some mm -hmm. types fit this directionality, some did not. Are they related? Right. That's a really, you know, a, when people start actually thinking about this material, that is a, a, a question that often comes up. I think they are related in some ways and not in others. And part of the reason is, uh, let's see if I can explain this, there's the level at which types represent a center, but types ultimately are not a center. They may be a preoccupation with the center and their fixation, but really the type energies exist in all three centers. For example, when I was just talking about, uh, I'll use the one as an example because we're just talking about type one, um, that I was saying it, when I'm in the fixated pattern of one, there's a way that affects my body, my breath, my posture. Um, it, it's there in my body, but there's a way it affects my heart. And there's a way it affects my mind. And all of, the, all of the types, even as the higher side, they express through all three centers. When we put the types with the centers, we're doing so to highlight certain themes that are really important for human development. 
So a while, of course, the eight energy uh, manifests in the body as this confidence and vitality. It manifests in the heart as kind of courage and, and deep caring. And it manifests in the mind as discriminating intelligence that cuts through the bull and can see what's really here now from all my projections and stuff from the past. That's all eight energy, but goes through the three centers. And yet, we also can think of the eight as, quote, a belly type, because the issues that are the main ones for the eight, the most important ones for a person who identifies eight as the pattern to deal with, have to do with the issues of embodiment and the right use of our body energy and our instinctual energy. So there's there's always these different layers of different levels of understanding of what these types are. They're they're metaphors for different elements of human experience. So yeah, in one sense the arrows are congruent that way, but in other ways um, with with the bringing in of the centers, but in another way they're quite distinct from that. For example, as a five, yeah, it's true. I need to bring in the belly more. Of, of the eight, and that fits the model. But I'm not just getting the, the belly part of the eight, I'm also getting the heart of the eight and the mind of the eight. All of that is needed by the five. So um, it doesn't work perfectly, as you said, in terms of the centers and the, and the internal arrows, but there are ways we can hold these in different levels of symbol and different levels of discussion. So and you know sometimes it just is it does work out simple but I think those places where it doesn't are significant and invite us to think about these things in a in a more nuanced and multi-vectored way. Mm, thank you. And Diane, uh you've got your hand up, so I'm going to give you the mic if you would go ahead. Diane Okay, let's go ahead and um, speak with Helen. Helen, if you would, go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, So I think I may be a nine. Um, And so one of the challenges for me is that I can relate to so many of the different uh, descriptions that you give. Yes. And one thing I wonder, you know, is... um, uh, in particular, I can see a lot of the patterns, you know, in terms of what was affirmed, you know, my family of origin and what, what was not and what was modeled. There were certain strong patterns, you know, like a lot of eight energy, a lot of one energy, a lot of three energy. And so I, I picked those things up. So, you know, in my own inner work, would it make sense for me to work with all those different types? Um, and and their patterning because of how they've been impressed in me or, um, you know, because I often don't identify just with the description of the nine. Yeah. Yeah, I I think there there are two things here, and that's an excellent question. Um, Helen, in my experience, I need something as a kind of fundamental practice. And that's what when I was, for example, talking about the wake-up calls, that's in the direction of a fundamental practice. I, I see practice as needing three things. I've talked about this before. One, our our time we do getting present, you know, doing our sitting practice or our Tai Chi practice or whatever we do to cultivate awareness and presence 
so that we have some in our so-called inner bank as we go through the day. But the second practice is, you know, noticing the patterns, self-observation, uh, being awake to what's happening in me. Now, within that second category, there are practices I'm doing just to keep, how can I say this, swimming a little closer to the surface. So I break, I break through and get some air from time to time. Right, so those kind of practices tend to revolve around my dominant type. So in your case, yeah, there's just some things you can do to have, let's say, good hygiene with my nineness. Right. That being said, if I'm really doing that, I will notice different things coming up that aren't specifically type related in the classic sense. And they are exactly as you said, they may be issues they absorb from my parents or my peers or, you know, from uh my uh my life partner or ex life partner for that matter. So once we've got established in ourselves some kind of more ongoing contact coming back to ourselves, yes, we're gonna notice these other nooks and crannies and my sense is work with what's here. See what's useful. And sure, you can use some of these other wake-up calls to work on some of that stuff, and it will come up. I think that we have many, many layers to us. But I, I just recommend the one of our dominant type as a way to just be moving around in my life with enough presence that I'll notice these more subtle imprints, as you call them. And I think that's a good term for them. Great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Alan. Thank you. And from Lynn on the webcast, Mm -hmm. as part of the deepening practice to self-observe presence in in the centers, it's important to know if, example, a feeling of heaviness in the body center is a physical sensing or an emotion, etc. As a nine, I generally suppress these sensations and find yes. it difficult to identify them, except as discomfort. How can this best be used to promote self-awareness? I think that we work with what's happening as it comes up, as I was just saying with Helen. And one way, I think as long as we're thinking of these things as discomfort, it's hard to do much with them. And that's a cognitive thing. That's a little cognitive uh, shift we can make. And, you know, what, some of my mentors would then, if I was reporting that I was feeling discomfort, they might well ask me, well, what? where are you feeling it? Where is that discomfort located? What does it feel like? Is it like a dull ache or is it an agitation? Or what's it feel like? To actually become curious about the specifics of the content of the experience with the knowledge that whenever I do that, it will tend to open me to something more usable, uh, an energy that I can go into. Um, In the course I just did with um, Helen Palmer and David Daniels and and Jessica Dibb, Helen and I were often talking about the value of going into these patterns to to get into the touch with the energy of them. So I would say in that particular case, the cognitive curiosity could be very helpful. Because I think the thing with nines is, is, is we can think of presence or think of body as a way to get away 
from what's bugging us, right? And we've learned very well how to do that. We know how to weave states for ourselves to move away from what feels overwhelming or unpleasant and difficult. And, you know, that was a pretty good trick, good thing to learn how to do. But I think that when I'm, always, uh, when I'm working with my beloved nines, I'm always saying it's about presence with content. It's about presence with and getting more and more specific about your experiences. The, the, the sloth... The passion of the nine produces this sense of vagueness, and and then we're not quite sure which way to go. You can start anywhere, and just get specific and curious about the the particularities of the experience you're having, and knowing there's no correct answer. There's just what we find in our experience. Um, and sometimes I don't know. I I don't make a rule about it exactly. I say any port in a storm. Sometimes I can work more with the body sensations. That's usually a safe way. Sometimes I actually need to be more aware of the feeling. And sometimes one will lead to the other. But I think if our head center is in a state of curiosity and receptivity rather than thinking there's something going on that I want to, I don't like or I want to get away from or that I'm rejecting, um, that mental stance makes it a lot harder. And so sometimes you also have to presence that too. Like, oh, how interesting. I really don't want to think about this. You know, and and to just have a sense of kindness and humor is seeing this this part of me that really doesn't want to go there right now. Sometimes you go with that, sometimes you question it. I think that one thing I think nines are great at is once I'm in the game of looking, really looking, Nines have beautiful intuition, and I bet you do too. I bet there's a way that you can sense when you can actually go deeper into looking at these things and when maybe it's nice to maybe go make dinner or something. You know, There's a way of respecting our process that I think is very important. Thank you. And we have someone in the 415 area code with your hand up, if you would go ahead. Can you tell us your name, please? This is Elaine Bell. Mm-hmm. Hi, Elaine. Hi. I wasn't sure if I was the one in the 4-1 area code, but I guess I am. I'm just really curious because I'm very much, well, a 4 mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But when mm-hmm. you were talking about the wake-up calls, I so resonate with the 1. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm... I am the responsible one. And yeah. that takes over more than... Uh, the, the four where I actually didn't relate to at all, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm, my I'm good, just curious about that. Yeah, well, my goodness, they're both related by a line, right? So mm-hmm. they, they mm-hmm. are. there's a certain internal logic. You know, I've sometimes thought that the lines between the types are just as interesting as the types because they're where the sort of inner conflicts get woven out. And the one is sort of the part of me that wants to keep everything under wraps, keep everything under control, keep an eye on it, make sure bad things don't happen. And the four is the part of me that just sort of wants to let go of all the controls and not and be kind of in a rapturous state to just be relieved of all this. But they, in whether you're a one or a four, there's always some kind of dynamic tension between those two parts of ourselves. They're, again, mm. the, all the types are splits or polarities. So I think 
in terms of this, you may, you know, looking at it over time, may come around, oh, my goodness, I'm actually a one with a lot of four characteristics. Or you may say, no, I, I, indeed, I'm a four who has a one characteristics. But I think the important thing in terms of inner work is for you to get really specific in how these two sides of you play themselves out and how one of them might get submerged sometime, the other jumps in the driver's seat and takes over, mm. to start to really track how these elements in you operate. Like they're, they're, You think of them almost like computer programs. They're not your identity. What you are includes all of mm-hmm. it. But to actually get interested in the specificity of that, I think you'll get um, more payoff from your inner work. Um, and you'll, you'll sort it out. I mean, it, it just, a lot of times when we're going back and forth between a couple of types, uh, we just sort of one day kind of back into whatever the truth is. And sometimes we were right at the beginning and sometimes it's something else. I, I thought I was a four for the first, oh gosh, gosh, like the first two or three years of teaching and working with Don, I thought I was a four. And it took me a while to see that I was a five. Now, some of that was because I wasn't seeing some of the five-ish elements in me. And, and when I learned the Enneagram, I just had a bad relationship breakup, and I was feeling sad and unlovable, and I was feeling longing. And so, you know, of course, but that was how I was in that particular time. It didn't necessarily reflect other periods of my life as well as the five did. But it also, I think it takes a while for us to get a, a real a gestalt kind of a holistic sense of what these types are about. We tend to buy into them or reject them based on a few observations or things that we relate to or don't relate to. But they're all whole worlds. They're all whole archetypes. And uh, I think that being patient and open-minded about that yields better results than jumping onto a conviction in some premature way that I'm one or the other, you know. Even if that's true, I may, as I was just saying with an earlier caller that we may miss important stuff. Um, that there may be other elements that are important for us to be aware of. So again, this is a, a case in point. If you only thought of yourself as a four, you might not notice these things about the one that you're seeing now that are clearly an important thing for you to be aware of. Well, I'm definitely aware of Tom being very judgmental, and, and it's, it works on an unconscious level of just seeing how I type or, or put things into perspective, but it's from a very mental, yeah. judgmental place. Yeah, well, there's another element of this that, you know, in the last um, session that we're having together, I'm going to go into talking about the the meanings of the inner line. So there's some other elements of that that may ring bells for you. I don't want to get into that now, but okay. um, there's there's more to your question than meets the eye. And I'll, I'll okay. address that in the final session. Thank okay? you. You're Loving very welcome. It. Yes, really enjoying it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. Okay, from Anne on the webcast. When you mm-hmm. spoke about bookends between 1 and 8, two and four, and five and seven. Could you please describe the bookend qualities? I get the image, but would love to hear you elaborate on these, especially between the two and four. I am a four, and my husband is a two. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, again, I, I, I would be easier to do it if I focus on one of those triads, and so I'll use heart triad as, as you're requesting. Um, by bookends, I mean that the types at either side of a triad, in this case two and four, represent almost polarities of the heart or polarities of the center. And in a sense, the two you could think of as the outward movement of the heart, the, 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 the way that the heart goes out to other people, out to situations, right? And the four is the sort of inward movement of the heart. Now, a whole heart has both of those. And we might be better at one of them than the other. We might be more gifted at one of them than the other. But if we're really present, then both of those movements are part of us. And indeed, when a, a four is developing, there's more outreach. There's more empathy. There's more of my heart going out to people and in, in real communion and connection. That's that's a real growth area for me. And the same thing for the two. When I start to be on this journey of of an inward journey in the heart and starting to really know my own depths and the mysterious places of the the inner vault of the heart, you know, as we move into this deeper and deeper mystery. So there are polarities in that way. And you could also look at the three in the middle. The three in this case, or the six in the head or the, the nine in the belly, is in a sense looking at the whole dialectic between really presencing that center or not. And so we see that split-off quality that we talked about. So when threes are running their uh, fixation, there's this disconnect between their, what's going on in the heart and the functional part of the self. doesn't mean threes don't have a heart. It just means there's this inner disconnect. So when we start to get reconnected as a three, guess what? <laughs> We're going to start getting in touch with, uh, and this is, would be a clue about our wing, the various two issues of how we're seeking love and connection and outreaching, or the various four issues of how we're trying to know ourselves and discover what's there in the depth of our heart. So the whole func- the whole triads function as kind of a beautiful interactive metaphor. And one of the reasons why I personally never want to give up the symbol, even though I know some people think it looks a cold or weird or everything, but it's actually a map that reminds us of the beautiful dance and dynamism between these things. They're not meant to be looked at as frozen categories. They were never intended to be that. So I'm really glad about your question, and I hope what I said um, helps make sense of that a little better. Thank you. And Lisa, you have your hand up. If you would, go ahead, please. Lisa, can you hear us? You might be on mute. Okay. Let's go back to another question from the webcast. From Mm -hmm. Sarah, how does being ill and in pain for a long time affect the levels of development? Could you explain this for type 7, please, and how one could utilize the Enneagram and the levels of the development in this situation. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, physical pain, uh, which I assume you're talking about physical pain and unhealth, uh, is, is a challenge for human beings. It's, it's an opportunity um, to get real about our vulnerabilities and our 
human journey and our mortality and a lot of things that it can there's certain ways that we can work with illness that can actually be helpful um and on the other hand that sometimes it's when we're feeling unwell it's kind of hard to <clears throat> marshal our resources in certain ways but we do our best um i can give two examples um one of my uh, mentors one of the people i've learned from uh, suffers from sh- shingles, which if any of you have ever had them, then you know they're really, really um, painful. They're uh, when people say on a scale of one to ten of pain, they're they're near the top uh, as, as a neurological disorder, uh, an inflammation of the nervous system. But the um, what my mentor said to me about this. I, I One time he was having an outbreak of this illness and when I saw him again, I hadn't seen him in a bit. I, I inquired, how are you doing? I heard you had this. And, and he said he was doing okay. I said, how did your inner work and your journey of realization help you? And what he said made a lot of sense to me and I've since had opportunity to practice with it. He said, well, presence doesn't make the pain go away, but it puts it in a in a proper context. When we're not present, we're in pain, it's hard to pay attention to anything else. All we can do is sort of drug or numb it, and sometimes we need to do that. But if we're there with the pain, if we're not present, it just sort of dominates our experience. But if we breathe with it, through it, uh, just like you know, in childbirth, or just like uh, when you wake up in a with a cramp in your leg in the middle of the night, there's a way of breathing and being with myself that relaxes the organism, so that the pain is there, but it's just a note within a broader music. It's just a color in a larger canvas, if you see what I'm saying. So that was what my uh, mentor was saying about that, and I found that to be true in my experience. Um, Don Richard Riso, my uh, dear friend and writing partner of many years, uh, passed away from cancer uh, a few years ago, as many of you may know. And he went through tremendously difficult uh, experiences, losing his um, ability to to get around, losing his uh, control of his uh, elimination functions and so forth, and being in a lot of pain. But, you know, he he said to me one time, he said, you know, I've had all these adventures in my life and I've, I've, you know, walked with you up to the Acropolis and we've been on in, in Japan and we've had all these adventures and we've taught people around the world. And that was one thing in my life. But he says, right now my life is about the adventure of figuring out how to turn over. And if I stop cursing the situation and thinking that something else should be happening. That doesn't mean I don't want to get better. I do. He says, but if I just am with it, and my attention is going into how can I turn my body over, triggering the least physical pain, and it might take me time to do it. He says, but it was actually interesting. It was a different kind of adventure to sort of be with that experience, to be in the truth of that. So... I, I want to, on one hand, of course, make holding and respect and consideration for, you know, when we're sick or in pain or not feeling well, it's a lot harder to 
focus our attention in certain ways. No question about it. But in, in any ways that we can do that, I think it tends to really help us maintain what dignity and presence of mind we can through these kind of difficulties. And it helps us actually hold them uh, so that they don't dominate everything in our experience in the way I was already saying. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm wondering if we have time for one more webcast question. Yeah, I'll do one more. Uh, so we had we were a little short last week, so let's let's give it one more this week. Okay, thank you. This is from Mary. My wake-up call seems to be a tendency to fantasize about a better future rather than going back into the past. I think I'm a four, but my wake-up call sounded more like a six. Could I be a four to goes away from the present by fantasizing about the future? Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose you could. I think that, uh, again, I'm offering these things as sort of a template to sort of get specific. And in the end, what number you assign yourself with is less interesting to me than the fact that you're noticing the patterns by which you're leaving yourself. That's more powerful. Thinking about the future to get away from myself, I actually associate more with, um, if you're thinking positively about the future, that's more like the seven. If you're thinking about, you know, fantasizing about amazing things you're going to do, that's more like the seven. The six is thinking about the future, but more like trying to head off the problems of the past. Like I'm thinking about what could go wrong and how I'm going to handle it. And that can be a good thing, but I can also end up scaring myself doing that. Uh, fours, in my experience, have a mixture of fantasies. Uh, some of those fantasies could be romantic and idealization. I just met somebody. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so good. But <laughs> usually, if the person actually is a four, there's also fantasies of, and I know how this is going to end up, and I'm going to be, probably be disappointed in the end, and I know how things go for me. And it's, again, bringing in some of the sadness of the past into the future. So, you know, I wouldn't presume to tell you what type you are. I just don't do that with people. I think that uh, it's more valuable to keep looking at the specifics of this. I think you you found a good pattern here to be aware of, but you may see more about it. These things usually are plugged into other things. As you see what it's all, the different elements of it and how they're dancing and how they're all plugged in together, you're going to get a sense of a whole pattern that will fit one of these types more than others. And hopefully if you're you're seeing what the pattern is, then which type you are is less important. I, I tell my students over and over again, pick the type that will help you wake up. Pick the type that the observation of which, uh, seeing the playing out of the patterns of that type, will help you come back to being a balanced, grounded, loving, compassionate, awake human being, because that's what the work's about. Mm, thank you. So we will begin our breakout groups here in just a moment. Uh, this is a powerful opportunity to deepen your experience of the material through sharing with others. So please press 4 if you intend to stay on for the breakouts, and we'll be able to identify you and get you into your groups. If you're on the webcast, you will need to call into Maestro Conference, so please do that now if you would like to join a breakout. 
and your personal PIN is on the home page if that would be helpful for you uh, if you're not sure what your PIN number is. And um, again, please press 4 if you haven't done so already. And Russ, um, I'm wondering, what would you like the participa participants to discuss today during their breakout sessions? Well, what I, my idea, and it, it's kind of come from feeling your um, your interest in energy around these wake up calls. I think it might be a fun thing for you to discuss. You know what you sense your wake up call was. If it's making questions for you about your type, as some people were saying, uh, or or you're seeing how it does apply. But based on what you are seeing from what I shared, see if you can come up with some ideas with each other of some wake-up calls you actually do over the next week or two. Because I'd love to hear what happens if if you take this on. Like, to customize it so it's very specific to how I live. We had some people who called in and or, or, um, or posed questions that were sort of looking at this. But see if you can personalize the, a, a wake-up call for you that you can actually explore this week. I think that would be a very good use of your time. Mm, great. Thank you so much. So I just want to um, check, Russ, are you complete? Are you feeling complete? Yeah. Going to our groups. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here in in this uh, prison facility, and <laughs> I've had this amazing day with the prisoners, as I shared earlier, and I've just had this beautiful time with you guys, and I just feel a little bit like, ah, my cup runneth over. I just have mm -hmm. had a beautiful day, and I'm so grateful that you guys are on the call with me, and uh, I hope what we've looked at will help you in uh, your journey. That's, that's what I'm here for. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Russ.